Welcome to this month's installment of Brass Chats, brought to you by Monster Oil. What is this? 21 year? Hey everybody, welcome back to Brass Chats once again. Today we're sitting down with a gentleman who teaches at the Hart School of Music in Hartford, Connecticut. And he has played with pretty much every kind of ensemble you can think of, including the Baltimore Symphony, the National Symphony, and the Washington Symphonic Brass. Mr. Phil Snedeker, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, appreciate it. Let's get right down to brass tacks. My favorite question, how did you get good at trumpet? Ha! <laughs> <laughs> a lot, of, yeah. I mean, that's you know, it's a little question, but people think you're an amazing trumpet player. We think you're an amazing trumpet player. We want to know what you did, especially from a younger age, more as a student, to get really good. That's an interesting question. I just didn't quit. That's the only thing I did to get good because eventually I was going to beat my head against the wall enough times to get good, but I just had to keep doing it. Yeah. I almost quit a hundred times actually. Seriously? Yeah. Oh yeah. Tell I, me about it. Well, you know, I went to Eastman and I was alternating between being a star and not being able to play anything. And uh, wow. toward the end of my time at Eastman, I just had kind of overuse syndrome. I was playing in everything from the jazz ensemble to the graduate brass quintet to orchestra to everything. And I did, I played first trumpet on the Eastman Wind Ensemble uh, recording with Wynton Marcellus, the Carnival okay. CD, which was a huge highlight in my, still is in my career. Uh, and it was great to hang out with Wynton and perform with all these great other players. Uh, Jim Wilt was on that session and really? Doug Prosser and great section to Bob Feller, Jerry Keener, uh, all these great players in that section. And we all played sea trumpets in the section and then went and played his Shepherd's Crick cornet. It was awesome. Uh, I was playing well then. Uh, shortly thereafter, I just kind of went back and forth between literally not being able to play anything and playing great. And, and who are you studying with at the time? Uh, Barbara Rutland, Charlie Geyer. Oh, so it's like both you get, I don't remember how that worked, was it? I studied with Charlie for four years, and then for my last year, the year there in grad school, school I, uh, I studied with Barbara. Oh, Which okay. was great. Thank you. And uh, they were great. Uh, they didn't, they, neither of them really knew what to do with my chop breakdown. And so I, I did a brief stint with the Dallas Brass, which was great, but it also magnified the fact that I really needed to go get my act together. And so I uh, went to see Arnold Jacobs. In oh, Chicago, really? And I studied with him for four years. Uh, Seriously? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Weekly lessons? So, well, no, not really. Okay, so the story is this. So I used to, in high school, I studied with a trumpet player named Don Jacoby in Dallas. Okay. Uh, off and on. He was a, uh, an old school, old style jazz player that used to play with Les Brown. Mm -hmm. Really great person and, and great teacher. But he, I went back to him after Eastman, and he's like, I don't know what to do with you. I don't know. So he says, and his, name, his nickname was Jake. Mm -hmm. So he says, uh, I'm going to call the other Jake. And we're going to set you up there. So he calls him up and says, Jake, this is Jake. You got to see this guy. He's a good guy, but I don't know what to do with him. So uh, we, I fly to Chicago. I, I basically camp out on Arnold Jacobs' doorstep. I, I go and see him in Ravinia like three, three weeks in a row. I was like, Mr. Jacobs, could you teach me? And he's like, see me next week. And he put me off for three weeks. And he said that was the test to see if I really yeah. wanted to study with him. And then finally he got me in the door and, and did some things and tweaked what I was doing and basically kind of got me thinking down another path, and I was, I was fine for a while. What was the issue? What, was, uh, what did you guys well, do? Well, how did I temporarily get out of it, or how did I permanently get out of it? Temporarily, oh. I, was, I forgot about thinking about music, and I was just thinking about all the mechanics of playing the trumpet. And Jacobs is really good about getting you out of that. So here's what he did, and I, and I told this to a few other people. Uh, 
recently, and that is that he, he looked out the window. He says, see those guys down there playing on the street? He says, you need to do something like that. And I was like, what do you mean? He says, you need to go play for somebody, you know, not think about playing the trumpet. I was like, well, I've never done that in my life. He's like, what do you mean you play on the streets? So I'm walking out of his studio, and I go down there, and I, I kind of look at those guys, and I, I'm listening to them. They sound pretty good. There's a little brass quartet. They were called the Brass Factory Brass. And so I listened to them for a while, and they sounded pretty good. And then after they got done, I said, do you guys do this every, every day? And they said, well, we do it every other day, but on Tuesday, this guy's not going to be there. So uh, you, trump you got a trumpet on your back. you want to play? I'm like, yeah. So Tuesday, I show up with my trumpet, and I start playing with these guys, and man, it was a completely different world. I just forgot about how to play the trumpet and remembered why I played the trumpet. Because all these people rushing by, they're not like judging me. They're like, yeah. they're just listening. So we're playing Barbara Seville Overture, and we're playing William Tell, and we're playing, you know, all, all these crazy transcriptions, and I'm having fun, and it kind of got me out of it temporarily. Was this, this was the temporary fix? This was the temporary, and, and that went on and off for years, you know, I mean, I. I actually pretty much found my my voice then and my my the way I played, but I think for a long time I played in a way that was detrimental to to really going to the next level. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, recently in the last five years, I've really kind of figured out how I do what I do and how to do it more efficiently, and I can teach that as well. And I'll mm -hmm. just I'll, I'll give you an example. And Tom Hooten actually touched on this in his interview with you guys, and I want to explain that because Tom just said, you know, he kept working and he kept working and, and he didn't understand why he wasn't any better and he kind of knew that the, the answer wasn't in the uh, standard pedagogy of just use more air all the time yeah. because he kind of intuitively knew that. And so I, I, five years ago, I also knew that and I kept thinking there's got to be a different way because the old saying, if you keep doing something the same way, you'll get the same results. Yeah. And at some point I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. So I rebalanced my playing and now I use, I use air, but it's constant supported air and it's not blowing the crap out of the trumpet and you can't possibly take this hole and stick it into this hole and blow the crap out of it and expect anything but massive back pressure right here. Mm -hmm. And when I thought about that and I realized that that's what Arnold Jacobs had been saying the whole time. He did this thing called, he did, he did this thing every, every time I went to his studio, he said, oh, do this. And he said, that's a lot of effort, not much air. And then he'd say, do this. He said, that's a lot of air and not much effort. You want as much like the second one as possible. Mm -hmm. So I thought that meant go, into this small hole, which mm -hmm. actually created this back pressure. Yeah. Once I realized that since he's a tuba player, he could yeah. go <laughs> into his <laughs> yeah. tuba mouthpiece, and I can't really do that into this hole, and I rebalance my air, it's everything so now much Now, this easier. is five years ago you're this talking about. This is five years this ago. This is recent history. This is, this is after I've had a lot of successes on the trumpet, but still never really knowing what the hell was going on? I would just, yeah. you know, some days it'd feel great, and other days it'd be like, what's going on? I must blah, blah, blah. And now I don't really have that many crappy days because even if it's a crappy day, if I concentrate on everything feeling by balancing out the blow into the trumpet, mm -hmm. eventually it just becomes easy. It becomes no back pressure. Mm -hmm. So I can play pretty much anything I want now and not feel that, that pounding against my chest. It's efficient now. It's, it's efficient. It's much more efficient. And that's what players, th these great players that we see on TV and we go hear them play, you know, when we hear Maurice Andre and, and all these amazing players in our lives, 
that's what they did the whole time, but they wouldn't always know how to explain it. Like yeah. I studied with uh, Bud Herseth, right? For, for a couple of years, I was in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, mm -hmm. and Herseth's lessons, the sum total of Herseth's lessons was <laughs> me coming in and, Mr. Herseth, okay, I'm going to play for you. I played Petrushka, and he'd go, nah. And he'd grab his mouthpiece, and he'd grab my horn and stick his mouthpiece in my horn and play it. He'd say, do it like that. <laughs> throw my horn back to me. And I'd, you know, try to play it for him. So he was, his was all about thinking about what product you wanted. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he was so stubborn, he wasn't going to accept anything less out of himself or his students. Yeah. He didn't really know how to teach, okay, you have to rebalance this and yeah. you have to do that. He didn't, he wasn't for that. He wanted to just have the product in his mind. For me, I needed some rebalancing. Yeah, and I would do that at various points in my career, but I really feel like I understand it now. I'm I'm working with my students on it. It's been amazingly successful with my students. Mm -hmm. I've taken students that have I, I recognize this in my students now, and I'm able to explain it. and And we also do this vocal thing where we're we're singing in falsetto so that your your inside oral cavity is more well positioned to do this blow rather than just going. <gasps> and everybody, it, most people, play. That's their general, and they go up and down from there, right? Okay, yeah. So I want their blow to be, so when I wake you up at 2 in the morning and I stick a trumpet in your hand, is where you go. Uh -huh. Okay, so, and if you sing that note, is where you want to play the trumpet. So if I want to play, I can play that much easier if my center of my faith is, sure. right, as opposed to, Right, you're it's you're like, like a lower extreme. You, everybody register. spends all day there, right? I yeah. mean, all all their warm up there. Mm -hmm. And I tell my students, to warm up in that register and make that the center of your. That's where the trumpets your, play. That's that's, that's the money play. notes, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. Nobody gives you money to go. <laughs> I mean, how many recording sessions do you show up and that's on it? So. You know, we're, we're spending all our time doing all that crap, and yeah. we really need to get the, the money notes free and easy like Arnold Jacobs. Yeah. And the only way to do that is not necessarily go into the horn. Is this too technical for this No, this interview? is all great. Okay. So it's, and then I think this is what Tom Hooten was trying to say, but he wasn't comfortable, you know, necessarily going into it. And, but I, I listen to him play now, and I think, wow. So he's somebody that actually stepped up through playing ability and and he's amazing right now i respect the hell out of him because well, he, he has he, solved all his own problems yeah he said he couldn't play a high c in the marine that's band. right and and when he was in the dc area i hired him a few times and he was a great musician but you could tell he was working some things out on the trumpet like yeah. i was and i and and he kept kept at it and kept at it and he practiced and he worked hard and man he really did it which is what yeah. qualities do you ascribe to your uh, best students persistence Oh really? Yeah, they just don't quit. Yeah, and and they and they take responsibility for their own playing. They do this. They sit in the practice room and they go, "Okay, Mr. Snedeker has given me X, Y, and Z to do. I've got to figure out this out. I got to figure out how to sound good on this." Mm -hmm. And they do that. That's the best students. The ones that are in my career that I've had that have, I would describe as not my best students have said to themselves, "Well, he's he's going to just teach me this, and, I, and at the end of my study with him, I'll just be a good player." Right. And I think that doesn't work out so well for them. Now, we've already talked about this. Uh, quite a bit, but I'd like to ask the question anyways, if you could name two or three of the most important things the teachers uh, in your life have told you. I always think Trumpet teachers. Yeah. Uh, well, 
starting with John Nelson, always think music. Mm -hmm. Try to forget you're playing the trumpet. And, and then I'll expound on that and say, always try to get your audience to forget that you're playing the trumpet. Mm -hmm. Try to play music first and trumpet later so that it doesn't matter what instrument's in your hand, you're, you're communicating to them through your instrument. And the instrument's just secondary because it's just a piece of plumbing. Yeah. And so many people play trumpet first and then throw some music in there later. And I think that's, that's too bad because you can have these note perfect performances and it's not so hot, you yeah. know, and because it doesn't speak to anybody. Mm -hmm. And if you can just play music first, I think that's the main goal of, of any teacher is to get your student to play music. Now, what about Barbara and Charlie? Oh, they were great. Uh, Charlie actually very much into uh, music motivation and he would pick it up and just sound wonderful and he would, you know, he was somewhat like Herseth in that he was uh, always talking about the music, what the music should be doing, of not too much about how to play it, mm -hmm. which, which was great. Um, and, then, and then Barbara is, is a little more analytical. She's, of course, as far as I'm concerned, both those guys are the dream team of trumpet players right now, yeah. uh, trumpet teachers right now, as far as having the best students in the best orchestras. And they have really got it down as to what these students need. But she's, she really thinks about, a lot about each individual as far as what they need, either trumpet-wise. She told me one time, you know, if I need to be their, their biggest cheerleader, I will. If I need to be the, a, an articulation Nazi, I will. If I mm -hmm. need to be a, uh, you know... If I need to build them up one way and tear them down another way, she just knows how to how to deal with each individual student, and I really respect. Yeah, that's it. amazing. I mean, they both really are such a great team, and I respect them. What about Bud? Did he give lot. you any gems that you remember? That I mean, you talked about how it was very difficult because he was wasn't the best teacher necessarily as far as pedagogical he was concepts. A coach. But well, do you remember? Did he say anything or do anything that really sticks with you that you were like, oh wow, okay? He said the most aggressive playing that he ever does is in pianissimo. What the hell does that mean? It means that, that when you're playing really soft, you still have to be, you have to have a lot of energy behind it, and you, have, you can't just go bleh. Wow. He was like, you know, you got to really, and, and he could play incredibly soft. There was that famous Song of the Nightingale yep. uh, recording with Reiner that is just some of the most beautiful trumpet playing yeah. in the world. And he talked about that to me, and he said, you know, that, that was, I just had to really focus and, and be aggressive in that piano. Wow. So, and that makes a lot of sense because you can't just let everything go to, to flab because it's still got to be vibrant. Yeah, sure. You know, he talked about loud far away. So it's like he's playing loud, you know. Oh, I see what you're saying. So really loud far away. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're hearing it from the next county, sure. but it's it still this vibrant energy. Oh, wow. And, and he, he, he demonstrated that for me. It's amazing. Oh, so he played the nightingale for you? Yeah, a little oh, bit boy. of it, not the whole thing. Yeah, sure. But he would, he would pick it up. He's, he, it, was, it was quite an experience. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears for a second and talk about some of your writing, uh, particularly your etude books. They're pretty much required at a number of universities now and a number of places. I've been through them. Joel's been through some of them. And, um, Have you got volume two yet? No. Oh, well, we'll have to fix that before you leave. My favorite is the, the low etudes. The low, oh. low playing is one of my Achilles heels. It's always been a problem of mine. So I've, I've, I find it's a really intelligently written book. It doesn't just stay down the whole time. Right. And it's just it really helps to put you in a positive frame of mind about low playing, and I really like it. But um, let's talk about all of your books because I don't even know what all of your books are. How many books do you have out now? Five or six. Uh, I've got a, a 
a trombone book, which is basically the first lyrical etudes transcribed for trombone. Yeah. But uh, there's trumpet volume, lyrical trumpet volume one and two. There's the low etudes for tuba. Yeah. There's low etudes for trumpet. Um, those are the four main ones. And okay. then uh, I've got another one in the works called uh, uh, lyrical orchestral etudes. So things oh. on Mahler 5, that like the lyrical solo for Mahler 5, I've written an entire etude on that. Oh, cool. Uh, the Shostakovich First Symphony. I've got a whole etude written on that, cool. so there's going to be one coming out for that. Oh, nice. I've got a lot of calls from tuba players wanting me to do the low etudes for tuba, volume 2, so I, I really want to do that. Awesome. Um, but it's fun to write these. I mean, it, it, they're just melodies. I don't sure. have... It, it, the. The cool thing is I don't have to sit down and work out entire orchestral yeah. arrangements of these things or piano arrangements. I just write the melodies. Yeah, sure. And in the end, that's what we have fun doing as musicians, right? We don't yeah. want, you know, <laughs> I always thought that A2 books were way too technical. They were too, uh, I mean, with the obvious exceptions. And the ones that were the exceptions, the Longinati and the Charlier and things like that, were fun to play. Mm-hmm. And that's why people played them year after year after year. And I thought, well, I want to, I want to write something like that. So, I guess I've done that, you know, in Absolutely. that people yeah, enjoy playing it. Yeah, they're a lot of fun to play. Yeah, that's one of my go-to books. And if you like playing it, you're going to learn more from it because you yeah. like playing it. So. Absolutely. Now you've done an amazing job. We've talked to several of our of our other brass chatters about uh, freelancing. We just did Alan Dean last month, and he talked about freelancing. We talked to Mark Gould about it in the state of the music world. And a lot of things, like if you don't get an orchestral job or, a, I don't know, a military band or something that gives you that pension and all that, or a university job, how do you forge a career? You've done quite a bit of freelancing throughout your life and just making a lot of different things work. What's your advice to people uh, looking to freelance and make a cobble together a career in music? Well, the first thing you got to realize is you have to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. The mm -hmm. problem is there's a gazillion musicians out there, or people with music degrees out there. Mm -hmm. And they're all wanting people to call them. They're all sitting by their phone going, why is my phone not ringing? <laughs> and that's part of the problem. Everybody wants jobs, but nobody's willing to go out there and make the rain. So you've got to go out and make a situation where musicians are employed. And that starts with getting either yourself or your group out there playing and creating a job where there were no jobs before. And that's exactly what I did. I was like, well, I'm just going to go start playing. And then somebody's going to hear it and start hiring me, or I'm going to. So I would, Seriously, I would go. That's in. what you did. Absolutely, you got to go make rain. You, Can you cut. walk me through what you did in more detail? Yeah. So let's just take Washington Symphony Brass, for instance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in 1993, we got together and we thought, well, we want to play this concert, and we're just going to all do it for free because we want to play Fanfare Liturgique and some of my arrangements and and the Rock Rivera uh, Requiem for the End of Time and some other things, and we're just going to play this concert and nobody's going to get any money and we're going to invite a bunch of people and mm -hmm. we did and people loved it and we played the next one and then pretty soon people started taking notice and we started we actually started a concert series at St. Luke where we had that first concert mm -hmm. they they started putting some money into it we started getting a following we started uh getting brass quintet and quartet and dectet gigs off of that mm -hmm. paid Okay, so pretty soon we were the official brass players for, you know, the National Cathedral and the Shrine at the Catholic University and St. Matthew's Cathedral and things like that, where they're not just hiring a bunch of freelancers, they're hiring the Washington Symphonic Brass Quintet or a group of players from the Washington Symphonic Brass or the whole 17-piece Washington Symphonic Brass to come play this. And I can pay these people because 
this money is freed up because they want us. Yeah. And that, that's work that wasn't really there before. This is not just Christmas and Easter. These are, yeah. these are you know, events and, you know, things that wouldn't normally have brass players, but we, they want us because they've heard us in X, Y, and Z situation. And yeah. so I'm actually making work for players. Oh, that's fascinating. And, and we also do a good job accompanying choirs. There are a number of choirs in the D.C. area uh, that, that would have us on either their Christmas shows or their uh, holiday or their other shows where we would accompany that instead of hiring, you know, uh, maybe an organ or an organ and a couple instruments, they'd hire the Washington Symphonic Brass to accompany them. And I would do these arrangements that would work with them. Yeah, right. And that's the other thing that worked is that I could take basically any tune and say, okay, well, we'll make this work for the instruments we have. Hmm. So uh, it was it was very successful that way. And players would come to me and say, hey, thanks for, for this. You know, this is... This is more work than has been in the area before, and it's and it's enjoyable work. And so take a proactive approach and go out and get yeah, it. Yeah, go make Don't some. Don't just rain. sit there by the phone. Yeah. Don't sit by the phone. That's great advice. And the other thing is, in your freelancer, you have a job. Your job is freelancing. It's an eight-hour a day job. If you sit and get up in the morning and turn on Netflix and start watching Netflix, you're not doing your job. Yeah. Get your butt out of bed. Go work eight hours doing something that's going to further your freelancing career. Either practice. Work on your website, make some phone calls, go out and play in the street. I don't care what you do. Do it for eight hours, then you can have a beer. I'm so inspired right now. <laughs> I just want to run out and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Pa- I'm trying to sell valve oil. I want to go freelance. I'm just seriously doing an interview. I'm sitting here on my phone. I'm thinking about how much I could get done practicing. Yeah. I don't oh, want to preach, but I mean, so many people yeah. get out of school and they go, I got my degree. Why isn't the phone ringing? Yeah. It's like, go out, get your butt out of bed, go do yeah. something. Oh gosh, okay. Uh, but you oh. got to be excited about what you're doing to do that. And so many people, I think, kind of like playing the music, but don't really love playing music. And I think you've got to have that. You got to find that in yourself and go out and sell your your craft. You got to sell it to other people. And if you don't like it, your audience isn't going to like it. Right, right. You got to really love it, and and the audience is going to go, oh, wow, why is that guy like that so much? Maybe there's something in that. Yeah, right. right. Oh, interesting. Uh, last question I have before the monster round. Could you please describe your greatest musical experience of your life? Or one of them. I know it's hard to pick one. First one that comes to mind. Uh, Mahler II, Yuri Tamarkanov, Baltimore Symphony. Oh, boy. Y- Yuri was just, is a, an amazing musician. And, and he, he has more expression with his eyebrows than most people have with their entire body. He doesn't talk much because what I love about conductor is, you know, if you're not speaking a lot because musical music is not a verbal art form. So you can't conduct a little, put your hand down and go blah, 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 blah at the orchestra and expect that to convey the message you want to convey. He puts his hands down. If he puts his hands down, most of the time he's just doing different things with his body. Mm -hmm. But he would he would stop and he'd say, Shelly, Papillo. And then he'd start again, and everybody knew exactly what the hell he was saying, and he didn't say anything. Yeah. And so that was just a great experience. Oh, that's great. That was a long time ago. That's but. so much better than my Mahler, too. When I was in college, <laughs> I was playing off stage, and the singer stood up right in front of the camera. They had a camera feed for us off stage. The singer stands up right in front of the camera right before we're going to play, like, oh, okay. no, what are we doing? I don't know what happened. I've got a great story about that, though, because at that same Mahler, too, I was playing on stage and off stage, and so I was playing. I was playing second off stage, and Ed Hoffman was playing first off stage, and he had to play that 
Bombi, and then echo Bombi. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to play the second echo into a bass case backstage. Oh. And he wanted me to hold his music. And so this is all kind of done after the rehearsals are over. He's like, can you come hold my music for blah, blah, blah. But then I have to go after that. And so there's, there's, I'm over there holding music for the bass case. And at, at, at that echo, it dawns on me that, oh shit, I have to get over here and play this this solo and I can't see the monitor. I don't know where we are. Oh, so no. I give him his music back. I go over and I don't know where we are. <laughs> and then Tamarkanov on the thing just starts going. He's just waiting for me. And then at some point I just go, bum, ba, 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 and he goes with me, right? <laughs> and my saving grace is Tamarkanov never knew who was playing what back there. Oh. So he didn't fire me, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Probably should have. Okay, this is the monster round. Are you right. ready for the monster round? I'm ready. This is where we do short answers, rapid fire questions. First thing that comes to your mind. I'm nervous. <laughs> Phil Snedeker monster round. Here it is. Given the choice between a slingshot and a musket in a gladiator contest, what do you choose? Slingshot. Oh. Ooh. Why? It worked for Davey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? Sure. Uh, when your car gets stuck in the mud, do you call AAA, your wife, the Coast Guard, or go find some plywood and get her done? Plywood. Okay. Favorite movie you don't want to admit that you like? Aladdin. <laughs> you really like Aladdin? Are you kidding? <laughs> Robin Williams and, and that soundtrack? Sure. Absolutely. Who is the trumpet player who made you come closest to quitting the trumpet? Anybody? Myself. Oh, wow. Didn't see that one coming. <laughs> it's a little dark for the monster. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. We do dark, too. Uh, favorite concerto? Tomasi. Favorite jazz trumpet player after 1980? Terrell Stafford. Oh. Uh, least favorite trumpet technique? Uh, pedal tones. Have you ever gone cow tipping or worn overalls for professional reasons? No. Okay. Who is the best second trumpet player of all time? Vincent Chiglitz. If every trumpet player in the world today had to copy one player, who should it be? Maurice Andre. Favorite painting? The Mona Lisa. What piece would you be glad to never see again? Piece of music. Adam's short ride in a fast machine. Oh, gosh, I hate that. <laughs> No offense to John. It's just more fun to listen to. Than yes, it is. Yes, it is. What's the single biggest mistake you see young trumpet players making? Thinking about the trumpet instead of music. Favorite musician joke? Uh, what burns longer, a trumpet or a trombone? What? <laughs> that, that, there's no answer. No <laughs> That's answer. the question. Okay. <laughs> Which trumpet player living today would you pay to go see right now? Oh, so many. I know. Yeah, I didn't ask that very well. Top three that you'd pay to go see. First three you think of? Uh, Jens Lindemann, Ryan Anthony, and uh, Wynton Marcellus. Besides family members and friends, who has been the most influential person in your life? Uh, I'll say Arnold Jacobs. What will be the title of your autobiography? Making Rain. Ooh. Uh, last question. What would you like your legacy to be? Um, that I was a good person. Phil Snedeker.
Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. A lot of Thanks fun. for having me. Appreciate it.